welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese history and culture through historical Chinese dramas. This is Kathy. And this is Karen. Today, we will discuss episodes 34 and 35 of the story of Minglan or Zhifo, Zhifo, Ying Shi Lu Fei Hong Shou. This podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain Chinese phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. And with this episode, we are officially over halfway done with the story of Minglan. We will post a poll on our website, just like we did for the story of Minglan, um, so that everybody can vote on what you would like for us to discuss as our next uh, drama. I'm not going to lie, episodes 34 and 35 are probably the two most confusing episodes in the drama. I've rewatched this drama a bajillion times, and uh, it's embarrassing that only recently did it click for me what exactly happened in these two episodes, because everything happens rather quickly. And I would say the biggest issue with this drama, and especially these two episodes, is that this drama does not have labels of who each person is. So you're left guessing who is who, and only after multiple viewings do things actually make sense, because also some of the background information is kind of lost to viewers as well without these labels. Anyways, after Minglan got her revenge and the person that killed her birth mother and unborn brother is no longer a part of the story, the drama has to move the plot along and we turn back to the next big catalyst and that is with Hu Tingye's storyline, the main male lead. And that involves politics and a coup. A couple of things we need to remind listeners of is because we haven't seen Gu Tingye in a while is that number one, Gu Tingye goes under the pseudonym of Bai Ye. Why Bai Ye? It's his mother's last name. He doesn't want people to know he's nobility or to rely on the fact that he is from the Gu family, which is a uh, military family um, by birth. And so he wants to make a name for himself. Number two. Gu Tingye saved a guy named Zhao Ceying and his father, Zhao Zongquan, uh, from assassins in previous episodes. And this is what I'm saying that, like, I didn't really know what was happening because only until I was doing research for this episode that I realized that this guy, the younger guy's name was Zhao Ceying. I just called him Huan Wang for the longest time. But... The younger guy is Zhao Ceying and the father is Zhao Zongquan. They are descendants of Tai Zong or the second emperor of the Song dynasty, but are not favored royal family members and have to live rather meekly with their heads down in order to avoid uh, suspicion and jealousy from other royal family members that could lead to death. Number three. The current emperor, Song Renzong, is aging, but unfortunately does not have a surviving son, so the title of crown prince, or taizi, is up for grabs by any member of the royal family. The two people who have the most power or are most likely in line for the throne are two princes. In this drama, that is number one, Yan Wang, and the other is Yong Wang, both clan members of the royal family. 
Yan Wang is someone we have not met yet, uh, while Yong Wang is the powerful prince who uh, essentially blackmailed the young duke Qi Hong into marrying his daughter. Number four, Zhongfei is a favored concubine of the emperor. The Rong family did not come from nobility and was rather poor, so is looked down upon by the aristocracy in the capital. Rongfei's sister, Rongfei Yan, committed suicide after being kidnapped and was humiliated at the hands of Yong Wang because she, Rongfei Yan, was competition against Yong Wang's daughter's marriage prospects to Ti Hong. So with that background information, let's start with the episode recap, and then we'll talk about uh, the actual history um, revolving around the events of these two episodes. And then Kathy will talk about book differences because there is quite a lot of deviation from the book. Well, episode 34 starts out with Gu Tingye grabbing a drink with some buddies in the city of Yuzhou. He recently quelled a large rebellion for the nation and has been promoted and recognized for his service. But he decided to visit Yuzhou for a bit. This city is in modern-day Henan province, and I just Google mapped it. The city is around a two-hour drive from the Song capital city of Kaifeng, and depending which route, around 145 kilometers away. This is important for the story later on. Zhao Ceying, or the son of Zhao Zongquan, asks to speak to Gu Tingye alone, where he reveals that uh, him and his father received a secret imperial edict from the emperor himself. The edict first praised the father-son duo, but then mentioned that the emperor's health was failing, and that the emperor himself wants Zhao Zongquan and Zhao Ceying to support the new emperor when he ascends the throne which will ensure the futures of these two men. Zhao Ceying needs some advice from Gu Tingye, as he came from the capital city, and wants some guidance from Gu Tingye as to what this odd edict could mean. The worry is that the emperor sent this edict as a warning, since the title of crown prince is still up for grabs, or worse, a target because the edict might mean there's favor to this royal relative, and someone might want to get rid of them. Gu Tingye suggests that they don't make any sudden moves. The best course of action is to get a few more soldiers or bodyguards to protect Zhao Zongquan, the father. When the son, Zhao Ceying, asks where they would get new trustworthy bodyguards, Gu Tingye is confused. Gu Tingye mentions that he saw a bunch of rather new-looking faces in the yard. Weren't they new security hired to help the family? That is when something clicked in Gu Tingye's mind, and he realized that those new faces? Probably a trap. Sure enough, out in the field where Zhao Zongquan is examining the crops, a couple of killers are waiting. They kill a few servants and then turn their attention to Zhao Zongquan. And just as Zhao Zongquan is struggling to keep his life, he is saved by the heroic Gu Tingye with his long spear. As more assassins pop out of the ground, thankfully the son, Zhao Ceying, arrived with his own group of soldiers to subdue the assassins. 
After a tense moment, Gu Tingye is able to capture one of the assassins alive for questioning. And we kind of gloss over all the kung fu fighting and whatnot because we don't really know how to describe it. So you can just watch it. I would say it's like just cool, but not really doing anything for plot purposes. And after capturing this assassin alive, we get to see Mr. Gu's acting abilities. With their prisoner tied up, Gu Tingye terrifies the poor guy with a whole slew of torture devices into divulging that the person who orchestrated this assassination plot was none other than Yan Wang, so a guy we have not seen yet. With this information, Gu Tingye advises Zhao Zongquan that instead of hiding away, which is Zhao Zongquan's preference, that in order to stay alive, why not head to the capital city and expose Yan Wang's actions to the emperor? After all, killing clan members that are potentially in line for the throne is not acceptable, and exposing the assassination plot might actually keep them alive and safe instead of hoping no one finds them where they hide. Zhao Zongquan is hesitant. He's like kind of like a scary cat, um, and prefers to head to a nearby farmstead instead, dressed as merchants under cover of night. But that night, when they try to leave to find safety, lo and behold, more assassins show up. After further intense fighting with some really cool bamboo sticks, uh, Gu Tingye manages to fend off the assassins once again, which leads a terrified Zhao Zongquan hurriedly exclaiming that, yes, they must head to the capital. When Zhao Zongquan makes this exclamation, I feel like Gu Tingye gave a sly smirk. Um, is this just me or... I think that he saw the assassin way earlier than anyone else, but instead of making a move at that time to prevent an attack, he let the assassin scare the procession so that Zhao Zongquan will see the danger of trying to hide. And they will continuously be followed and attacked, so the best thing to do is to head to the capital. And so, we assume they pack up and are ready to leave. I personally think it was a setup by Gu Tingye. Yeah, I thought about that, but like, they were pretty aggressive to this guy, and the assassin like actually stabbed a bunch of people, so I like couldn't tell if it was real or fake. Mm, good point, good point. Well, from what we've seen so far, this Yan Wang has been gathering troops and military support in order to command the throne at a moment's notice. We see him trying to eradicate the competition outside of the capital city. It is now time to see what's happening inside the capital. To get there, there are two facets. One are the government officials, and another is the military prowess in the capital. So how does the drama move this storyline along? We kind of saw what happens outside, as, as I just mentioned, but for... Uh, a coup to happen inside the capital, you need the government officials and the military. On the government official side, Minglan's father and brother are both currently in the Imperial Palace working to prep documentation and whatnot for the new, still unknown, Crown Prince. They've been staying in the Imperial Palace for a couple of days, and after discussing with Grandma Sheng and Minglan's sister-in-law, Minglan actually visits her brother and father in the palace because 
She's made fresh fish soup for everybody in the Imperial Palace or in that room. But as she is ready to leave, a eunuch tells them that there are no guards at the main gates to open these gates. That's rather odd because it's the middle of the day and why would there not be any guards? This brings us to a third group of people to pay attention to. Earlier in the episode, Gu Tingye's stepmother, the Marchioness of Mingyuan, who we'll call as Qin Danyangzi from now on because her last name is Qin, is not fussed about not being invited into the palace by the powerful Rongfei. As Karen mentioned before, this Rongfei is a favorite concubine in the palace. Qin Danyangzi was not invited, whereas her sister-in-laws and several other prominent female members of the nobility were. She's not on the radar anymore, but this uh, current status of hers turned out to benefit her life very much so. So this is probably where the most confusing parts of the uh, two episodes kind of happen, because like I said, I had no idea what was going on for the longest time. So hopefully we will explain this so that you can uh, follow along or actually get some more clarity as to what exactly happened. In the palace, we meet Rongfei, who is entertaining female guests. So other women of nobility. And this is important. The women in attendance include Ping Ning Junzhu, who is Qi Hong's mother, and Gu Tingye's aunts. The key line that Qi Hong's mother utters is that she notices the ladies in attendance are all the women of military officials, so wives of military officials. Gu Tingye's family are a military family, which is why Gu Tingye's aunts were invited. None of the families that Rongfei is generally close to are there, which is quite odd. Shortly after, a eunuch bursts into the room to share that another eunuch has been killed at the gate. Rongfei stands up and is not surprised whatsoever. Instead, she slaps this eunuch across the face and has him dragged off. That's when the ladies in attendance to this soiree realize it's a trap. Zhongfei has colluded with a group trying to overtake the palace. The women invited to this event are now hostages of all key military officials in the capital. Anyone who dares make a move against Rongfei will have their families killed. She sneers at the group of ladies and tells them that each one of them has insulted her background and are waiting for her downfall after the emperor passes because she has no son. She has to ensure that she remains in power after this transition of power. But the person that she hates most is Princess Ping Ning, or Qi Hong's mother, because she tried to protect her precious son so much that her sister, so Rongfei's sister, Rongfei Yan, was kidnapped. And it was because of everyone's gossip, everyone in attendance to this party, who gossiped about Rongfei Yan's humiliation and experience that caused her to commit suicide. For revenge, Rongfei has these women under watch, but Princess Ping Ning in particular is dragged off. So uh, what else is happening? Yeah, what the heck is going on? Rongfei 
has actually sided with Yan Wang to initiate a coup for the throne. So the guy she's standing next to is actually Yan Wang. They have kidnapped Yong Wang and his wife and daughter and several other family members. Remember, Yong Wang's daughter is currently married to Qi Hong, who is Princess Pingning's son. Rongfei here hates the lot of them. Yong Wang is furious. He's the chubby man uh, that we see. He's furious that this happens and starts a fight with the guards. I honestly don't know what he was thinking. He's like a pretty chubby man. He like grabs a sword and I'm like, what? What are you going to do? And this is where I was like, drama, you need to have labels because I saw this for you know the first 30 times I watched this episode and I was like, who are these people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I don't know who these people are. Notice that the princess, so Ti uh, Hong's wife is here, but not Ti Hong. In the main hall, the emperor also hears the news that rebels have completely surrounded the palace and there's nowhere to run. Back where Milan is, a kind eunuch tells him that there are dead bodies everywhere. The rebels have started storming the palace and committing unspeakable acts. This terrifies the officials and particularly Sheng Hong and Chang Bai, who want to protect Milan. Notice how when the eunuch says uh, they're killing the women, Changbai kind of pulls Milan behind him. Oh, he's such a great brother. The eunuch, though, shares um, the fact that there is a dog hole that he and Milan can try to escape out of due to their small size. And Sheng Hong, for once, is a good father to Milan. He pushes her to leave at once. It is not safe in the palace anymore. The eunuch says that he has an extra set of eunuch clothes that he can give to Milan to help her escape. And that is where we head into episode 35. And now this, for me, unlike for Karen, is the most confusing scene in the drama. Because the drama doesn't actually explain what happens when we start off with episode 35. We cut back into uh, the main palace. And we see several bodies on the ground. Who are the bodies? Well, it's actually Yong Wang, his wife, and daughter. They were straight up murdered by uh, Rongfei and Yan Wang's guards. The only person left alive right now in that group is Princess Ping Ning. And this is key. I um, had no idea what actually happened, and I wasn't really paying attention to the bodies on the ground to realize that Qi Hong's wife is now dead. And also, I read the book, so then I kind of got it. Well, there was a scene later on where, like, Princess Pining was like, oh, I'm sorry, I made you become a widower after only being married for a few months. And I was like, what? <laughs> when did his wife die? <laughs> That's really embarrassing of me, but yeah. uh, that's that's pretty much my thought process of this drama. I don't know about you guys. Maybe you guys were way smarter than me watching this drama like 30 times, but only recently did it click that she died in this scene. Yeah, so so I think they they killed everybody and they just saw the dead bodies and we just see Princess Ping Ning uh, next to the column. So we don't really see anything uh, before that. But here, Rongfei also wants to kill Princess Pingning. The whole impetus for her to leave Princess Pingning um, as the last one was to see, hey, you caused everybody's death here. 
which honestly is like not untrue, unfortunately. Well, Princess Pingning keeps her wits about her and actually feigns insanity. Her faking uh, this insanity was her only option to stay alive, quite honestly. And Rongfei indeed does not have her executed, but instead has her dragged out to the streets so the world can see her. It's humiliating, but still, the princess keeps her life, unlike Yong Wang's entire family. Now we're back with the emperor. He is furious that all of this has happened and he has no choice but to rip his own robe, bite his own finger so that he has blood to write down a decree that the next prince uh, or the crown prince is going to be Zhao Zongquan at this critical juncture. Because, like I mentioned earlier, Zhao Zongquan is in Yuzhou, which is the closest to the capital, and they, or Zhao Zongquan, could help fight against the coup. But the emperor also is like, huh, this guy is actually more kind than any of the other clan members that could be options for the throne, so we'll go with this dude. With this blood edict and being full or military seal in hand, a brave young maid stands up to bring the message to Zhao Zongquan. The reason why she accepts the potentially fatal task is because of the kindness that the emperor exhibited to her several years back. We've actually talked about this story before um, in a previous episode, um, as it may be, a, I think, a true story, or at least as true of a story it can be for uh, it's been documented quite well. But in any case, this young maid has with her precious cargo and is sneaking away uh, out of the palace using the same dog holes that Minglan is using to escape as well. Dressed as a eunuch, Minglan bumps into this young maid and they successfully help each other sneak out of the palace and into the city. Unfortunately, the palace walls have been breached and the whereabouts of the maid with the edict has been sold out to a rebel general who orders troops to search for the maid in the city. Out on the streets, these soldiers spot the fleeing maid and Minglan because they're wearing palace garb, so it's not hard to spot. And with probably the worst luck, the maid is hit in the back of the head by, I think, a rock and starts bleeding. After hiding and running for a bit, the young maid lost too much blood to continue and entrusts the edict and the military seal to Minglan in order to save the empire. With the maid's dying breath, she pushes Minglan to go find Zhao Zongquan. Not given too much time to think, Minglan jumps onto a cart with a horse and flees out of the city with soldiers hot on her heels. All seems lost as this defenseless woman cannot protect herself against a group of soldiers. But luck would have it, she runs into none other than Gu Tingye's party, who as we mentioned earlier, was making their way from Yuzhou to the capital city. They see this conflict and save the day. 
Honestly, I'm pretty impressed with some of the stunts that they pulled in this drama, um, like the horses and whatnot. It was pretty impressive. And I do appreciate that they didn't make Minglan seem like a badass, like martial artist, because in other dramas, she would have been able to take all of these people. But in this drama, she has no like martial arts background whatsoever and requires someone like Wu Tingye to save her. Uh, okay, I still think that... Um the whole jumping off onto a cart kind of just like I had to suspend belief for a good 10 minutes of this episode. Yeah, I mean, I personally feel like she would have caught, been caught much earlier, but whatever. Hu Tingye was there to save her. And <laughs> the uh, traumatized Minglan is crying her eyes out at what happened. Uh, but luckily, the message that needed to be sent find its, finds its rightful owner. The blood edict and the military seal is presented to Zhao Zongquan. After some consideration, Zhao Zongquan accepts being named Crown Prince and heads to the nearby military encampment to procure troops in order to save the emperor. Before heading out, Gu Tingye ensures that Milan is taken care of, and they have a rather sweet conversation uh, between the two of them. Milan recognizes that it seems like it's always Gu Tingye who saves her life when her life's in danger. And she tells him he doesn't have a lot to repay him with except her life. You can see the glint in his eyes when uh, he hears Minglan say this. After leaving his trusted servant with Minglan to protect her, Gu Tingye heads out with Zhao Zongquan to save the emperor. By now, it's nighttime, and the palace is controlled by Yan Wang, who is currently trying to force the emperor into naming him crown prince. The emperor is stalling and trying his best not to adhere to this request, but also recognizes the precarious situation he is in. In the end, the emperor believes that if he simply dies, then Yan Wang will not have a leg to stand on when he takes the throne. So either way, Yan Wang needs to wait for that royal edict. So he tries his best, or the emperor tries his best, to continue stalling. Outside, Gu Tingye and company have gathered enough troops. At the palace gates, they pretend that they are here at the behest of Yan Wang to trick the guards um, managing the palace gates to allow them in. Once the gates are open, though, Gu Tingye's party streams in, fighting off the rebels, or Yan Wang's men. Hearing the commotion, Yan Wang takes the emperor hostage to the entrance of, I guess, the, the palace room. But before he can even really do anything, he is shot with an arrow by none other than Gu Tingye. It was like, I have the emperor. Bam. <laughs> and with that, uh, this Yan Wang person is dead and the rebels are eliminated. That was really quick. Yeah, within the span of like five minutes uh, TV time. The Emperor is safe and this coup is over. Like I said, the last two episodes, 34 and 35, just like has too many things happening that you actually have to pay attention instead of having it on in the background. Uh, anyways, it's kind of funny the way the Emperor sits on the ground chuckling at the sight because he's like, oh, who thing he came to save me. With the coup over, the Emperor and Empress sit to meet Zhao Zongquan, Zhao Ying, and Gu Tingye. 
It really is fate that the blood edict was delivered to the hands of Zhao Zongquan so quickly. Because if there was any further delay, who knows what would have happened to the poor emperor? Now, with the harrowing parts of the last two episodes over, the rest of episode thirty-five is to wrap up、uh, what happened. There is a hilarious scene where the emperor reveals that Gu Tingye is, in fact, nobility because everyone else thinks. He is named Bai Ye, but then、uh, this is one of my favorite parts of the the episode. Gu Tingye just straight up asks the emperor why he prevented him. So why the emperor prevented him, Gu Tingye, from passing the imperial entrance exams? The important result of this conversation is that the emperor decreed that no one will mistreat the Gu family for Gu Tingye's bravery in that day's actions. Gu Tingye could have harbored ill will against the emperor for preventing him from、um, being placed on the imperial exam, but he didn't, and instead turned around and saved the emperor. So the emperor is eternally grateful for that. After this is all settled, Gu Tingye is able to escort Minglan's father and brother out of the palace safely because, if you recall, they were、uh, stuck. In the palace, while all of this was happening, and then they also send signal to Minglan as well that everything is safe. The craziness of the day is over, and all seems to be settled. The episode ends with the Emperor Song Renzong passing away of illness, and the new Emperor Song Zongquan or Song Yingzong ascends the throne with an Empress Dowager, also providing over court matters. We now usher in a new chapter of the drama. We're at the halfway point, and this is where the, I guess, the leveling up happens. Qi Hong's wife is dead. Gu Tingye is now one of the most favored military officials in court. And there we have it. That is the episode recap. Quite a lot that we discussed or tried to cram in, but we thought about separating the episodes, and it just didn't make sense. Like they went together and. Key turning points for the drama. And with these two episodes, did you guys all spot some cameos in them? I don't know how many of you listeners have watched Nirvana and Fire or Long Yabang, and if you haven't, go watch it. It's amazing. <sighs> But there are several actors and actresses from that drama that make a guest appearance in these two episodes. Yong Wang,、uh, the fat guy in、uh, episode thirty-four,、um, he played Ji Wangye in、uh, Long Yabang. You have Yan Wang. Who played Xia Jiang, or who was Xia Jiang in、uh, Nirvana and Fire, and Rong Wangfei, or the、uh, the concubine, who also played a prominent concubine in Nirvana and Fire as well. But、uh, just a quick call out, a very very cool little call out there. Also, I mean, the whole reason is because the、um, the production the production company, company is the same、mm-hmm. uh, between the two dramas. 
Okay, let's talk history. The conflict between Yan Wang and Yong Wang did not actually exist in the Song Dynasty. These two princes and their conflicts were written for the book, the story of Minglan that the drama was based off of. But uh, um, they, these two princes did not exist in history. The fact that the current Song Emperor did not have any heirs, though, was a problem for him and this dynasty as a whole. I feel like there was a lot of conflict of who to uh, to inherit the throne. We've talked about Song Renzong before in this podcast, but to recap, he was the longest reigning Song Dynasty Emperor, ruling for 41 years and passing away at the age of 52 in 1063 AD. He was well known for his kindness and understanding uh, because, as we see, his title was Zhen, which translates to a lot of, you know, understanding and and, uh, forgiveness. Generosity. Generosity, yeah. The reason the young maid stood up to risk her life for the emperor is due to his kindness. The story she recounts about how the emperor didn't make a fuss when he was thirsty in order to save her from being punished is one actually we've discussed briefly in episode 13 and 14 in this podcast. This simple story speaks to his nature. The biggest regret he had in his life is probably that he did not have a surviving son to take the throne. He had three sons. None of them survived to adulthood. And that's where we get this new emperor. In the drama, the person is named Zhao Zongquan, but in history, he is named Zhao Zongshi, and his name was later changed to Zhao Shu. Born in 1032 AD, he ascended the throne in 1063 after Song Renzong passed away, and this guy was 31, so much younger than what he is being portrayed as um, in the drama. He is the great-grandson of, um, as I mentioned, the second emperor of the Song Dynasty. And this was this is the same as in the drama. I don't know if I should feel bad for the guy or not, but from a young age, he was brought to the palace to live as if he were, I guess, a relatively, or like a son, um, because even then, the emperor did not have any sons. So it was kind of like an insurance policy starting in 1035. But the emperor did have a son in 1039. So this guy was kind of like not needed for a while and allowed to leave uh, the palace. But then when the emperor's son died of uh, illness in 1041, the only other option was Zhao Zongquan again or Zhao Zongshi, the the actual um, person in history. I feel like that is such an uncomfortable way to live, right? Like my value is whether or not the emperor can birth a surviving son. And like, I'm waiting in line to see if the son survives or not in order for me to be useful. As you can see from what I've described for many years, this person was primed to be, uh, I guess, like a son of the emperor. And, um, I'm sure there were conflicts, but the conflicts were not as bloody as the drama made it out to be for who would be crown prince. Not shown in the drama, but this emperor only ruled for a few years before dying of illness in 1067. So he only ruled for like three or some years, almost, yeah, less than four years. To help him rule is none other than the empress dowager Cao Huanghou, or now Cao Taihou. She is a key person in history, and we will touch uh, upon her in the future um, because she will play a key role in the second half of the drama. 
All right, next up is the one idiom or classic illusion that was referenced in episode 35 by Zhao Zongquan. It's Zhu Ying Fu Sheng, or shadows by candle and the sounds from an axe. Zhao Zongquan exclaims that he doesn't want to be remembered similarly to this idiom, which is why he was hesitant to accept the title of crown prince. Well, what does this saying mean? This is referring to the succession dispute surrounding the death of the first emperor of the Song dynasty in the year 976 AD. The first emperor of the Song dynasty, Zhao Kuangyin, invited his younger brother, Zhao Guangyi, to the palace to discuss political matters. Later that night, the emperor, Zhao Kuangyin, died and Zhao Guangyi ascended the throne. This is odd because the throne was passed down to a younger brother rather than a son. And uh, I know that the names sound very similar. The characters are very different in Chinese. I'll try to make it more clear uh, when, when talking. According to a written account written by Wen Ying, a Buddhist monk in 1060 AD, which is about like almost 90 years after this, so give everything a grain of salt. It was a snowy day when Zhao Guangyi dined with the then emperor Zhao Kuangyin. The palace eunuchs and maids saw in the distance Zhao Guangyi's shadow by candlelight, agitated, moving a lot. The floor was covered in snow and they heard an axe chopping the snow. Zhao Guangyi, the younger brother, was heard saying, Hao Weiji, or do it right. Later that night, the then emperor was heard snoring in his bed. Zhao Guangyi, the younger brother, stayed in the palace overnight. A few hours later, the emperor was pronounced dead by his brother, who then ascended the throne. Hence why there's this idiom, Zhu Ying Fu Sheng. It describes this incident and fuels some rumors about how Zhao Guangyi ascended the throne. Now, there's no concrete evidence of fratricide, but these rumors still exist today, as is evidenced by this idiom. I'll add a little bit more spice to this as well. So the year that the emperor died was 976 AD. If we back up some 15 years before this to the year 961 AD, Empress Dowager Du made this Song Emperor promise that his younger brother will succeed him to the throne. So this is um, the emperor's mother. In her mind, the reason why the Song dynasty came to be was exactly because the previous kingdom they usurped had a seven-year-old king. So this promise is referred to as the alleged Jin Kui Zhimeng, or Golden Shelf Promise. This edict for the Golden Shelf Promise was supposedly recorded and sealed and reopened when Zhao Guangyi ascended the throne to justify his ascension. So basically said, okay, um, the previous emperor, Zhao Kuangyin, put in this golden shelf, this edict that I will uh, give my throne to my younger brother. 
Okay, fine, sure. But by 976 AD, Zhao Kuangyin's eldest surviving son was already 25. So the argument of a young emperor doesn't make that much sense. And get this, this son, Zhao De Zhao, committed suicide only three years into the reign of the new emperor, Zhao Guangyi. So it's kind of fishy as to the justifications of the ascension as the whole thing is clouded in mystery. So let me kind of uh, set this straight again. I know it was a little bit confusing. So in 961 AD, Empress Dowager Du made the then Song Emperor Zhao Kuangyin promise, hey, you need to uh, give the throne to your brother. All right. By 976 AD, the Song Emperor Zhao Kuangyin has dinner with his younger brother and he dies, sparing the whole uh, idiom for um, Zhu Ying Fu Sheng. So Zhao Guangyi ascends the throne, and three years later, the son of the old emperor also commits suicide. Now back to the drama. Zhao Zongquan didn't want to be mired in scandal if he stormed the capital, proclaiming himself as crown prince, especially because he had this uh, idiom or this um, history in mind. Now there is a nitpick for me, though, is that I don't think in actual history any member of the royal family would say this idiom because at this point, they are actually all descendants of Zhao Guangyi, the younger brother who ascended the throne. Wouldn't it be blasphemous to bring this up, to say, hey, um, um, my forefather, my ancestor, basically got the throne in an illegitimate fashion. <laughs> He's like basically confessing that he thinks um, his ancestor did something wrong, which I don't think in actual history somebody would say this out out loud but this is a drama um, and just wanted to point that out Alrighty, uh, that was a lot but let's conclude with some book differences in the book the events shown in the drama are only spoken of after the fact what happened in the book is that the master of the sheng family sheng hong and his eldest son sheng changbai were in the palace and just didn't return for six days. The women of the Sheng family could only wait anxiously. Different military groups stormed the city and blood ran down the street. The women, luckily, were safe at home. After six days, Sheng Hong and Sheng Changbai returned home, shaken but safe. The two recount the events of the past few days. There was a hidden room in the palace where the group of them hid and were safe. Everything that happened in the drama uh, for the past two episodes are spread over the six days. Rongfei, the concubine, did indeed conspire with a prince to instigate a coup. As in the drama, she did lie to many female uh, aristocrats and invited them over to the palace, only to round many of them up and kill them. In the book, it is explicitly stated that for the revenge of the death of uh, their younger sister, Rongfei and her brother captured Qi Hong's wife, Jia Cheng Xianzhu, and her mother, and they were raped and then killed. Unlike in the drama, the emperor himself had his own military branch to kill the traitors. Gu Tingye and Minglan don't play any role in this coup um, at this point. There's a couple of coups in the, in the story, so you know we'll talk about those later. But in this book, 
the emperor doesn't die after this. And the prince that Gu Tingye is aiding is only summoned to the capital after this current coup. The Sheng family actually emerged pretty well from this whole uh, incident. Family members were promoted. Minglan's brother-in-law, so Hualan's husband, actually aided in warding off the traitors. So it turned out pretty well for them. The timeline of these events for these two episodes are also very different um, in the book than in the drama. These events occur early on in the book, actually, before Mulan gets married. So Lin Xiangyang is still very much alive for these events in the book. Now, I do want to remind um, our listeners that this is, of course, a drama, and it needs to match kind of the overall story or book rather than history. The book itself is not set during the Song Dynasty, so it didn't have any history constructs to follow. As mentioned before by Karen, the coup did not happen in history, and the drama is just depicting the events from the book. It does a pretty good job of trying to tie it all together, but um, most of these are just book-specific rather than history-specific. I personally am a fan of how the drama portrayed the conflict, even though execution-wise, like they could have at least added some freaking labels as to who people were. Um, I feel like it made a lot more sense as to how and why Gu Tingye became so heavily favored by the new emperor or why he um, is now powerful and welcomed back. I don't know welcome back is the right term, but like has the... Uh, um, the frame of reference and is able to do more things and be more successful in the future. I will let go of the disbelief that Minglan was able to successfully evade soldiers for that long and pass along the message. There were probably too many instances where luck and fate moved the story along, but that doesn't mean these two episodes weren't enjoyable. And again, it, it did make me um, read up a lot about history. That is all for today's podcast episode. We learned a lot about what happened in the uh, capital and what's going on with the, uh, um, the imperial throne. And now we have a new emperor who is going to change the face of how things are done in the Song uh, Empire. Moving forward, we will now see how the new chessboard is being set up with uh, these new key players. Thank you all so much for listening. Today's music is uh, the title theme of the drama, Zhifo Zhifo, played on the zither with sheet music by um, Cui Jianghui and music played by yours truly. As always, if you have any comments or questions on what happened in these two episodes, particularly because they were a little confusing, please reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter or email us or send us a message and check out our website. Thank you all so much for listening and we will catch you in the next episode.